Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. When Elliot Babin joined Los Angeles-based post-hardcore band Touche Amore, he decided to share one of his favorite bands with the other members, the Aquabats. They were not impressed. But still, they liked Elliot and accepted having a ska guy in the band, even if that meant running the risk of tarnishing their legacy as a pitchfork-darling, melodic hardcore band that both tries to make the world a better place and, quote, inspires guys with neck tattoos to irresponsibly slam into one another. And by the way, do check out Lament, Touche Amore's latest. Pitchfork accurately described it as phenomenal and gave it an 8.2 rating. Fortunately, Elliot decided to spend this time chatting with us about ska. So for a lot of people, their entry point into music ends up being ska. Why do you think that is, Aaron? I think that it is inviting. It's an easy crowd to get into. It's energetic, but it's safe. It's not angry and aggressive. So I think for people who are young or just not used to live music, it feels comfortable. It feels like they have a place in it. I feel like the more of these that we do, the more we find out that a lot of different musicians, even the most intense musicians came up through ska. Yeah, totally. And the funny thing is that it's people that are a little older than us, people that are our age, people that are a little younger than us. So it's not even a generational thing. Yeah, it seems to be a constant. I feel like we're going to hear about it for years to come. Elliot is of the age where he was starting live music in the early 2000s. And that's a period of time that a lot of people think ska wasn't really all that big or popular, but he came up through ska. Kind of disproves the theory that ska wasn't really around much after the 90s. And notably through the Aquabats. I'm looking at this photo of you. You got like a cool mustache. You have a, a number, 10481. Got some cool glasses. Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about? That would be my Aqua Cadet card. Yeah. It's got to be. Yeah, it is. It's got to be. There's no other way. <laughs> Tell me about that. Tell me about uh, when you became an Aqua Cadet. I mean, that's really, if we want to get into my relationship with Scott, that's really where it all started. Uh, when I was 13, my very first girlfriend uh gave me the Fury of the Aquabats. And it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. At this point, I was pretty into, I was kind of like in my rancid phase and just kind of starting to get into more quote unquote alternative type things. Yeah, so I went to go see them and it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And shortly thereafter became a cadet. So were you familiar with Scott before you had seen the Aquabats? Only in the really... Uh, surface level, like, no doubt, sublime K-Rock kind of thing, you know, just re really, really surface level. Can you recall any details from that show? Yeah, it was Glass House with bad credit. Um, who else played? Yeah, bad credit, Aquabats, Glass House. I just remembered everybody camping out in front of the venue, like, 
five hours before doors, everybody dressed up, everybody like bringing food. This whole community obviously existed that was unlike anything I was familiar with. People knew each other. People had like their Aquabats forum names, uh, like on their name tags. And it just seemed like this wonderful community of people who were just down. And it was really eye-opening for me. And yeah, and shortly after that, I joined the Aquabats forum which was a whole nother life-changing chapter for me that we can get into whatever you want. But that's really where it started for me. What prompted you to become a cadet? I'd love to hear that story. I remember just, it seemed like it was kind of a rite of passage. Uh, I just assumed that all of these people who showed up to these shows five hours early and dressed up and knew each other, they were all part of this exclusive club. And it turns out that it was not an exclusive club. It was just people that had communicated over the World Wide Web. But I think I somewhat internalized it as like, okay, if I want to be in with these people, I'm going to have to become a cadet because that's, <laughs> that's like what you do. That's like step one. If you want to get in with these people. Tell me about being a cadet. I've never done that. So is there a whole process to becoming a cadet? No, it's like you essentially send in $10 in a photo and you get... <laughs> You get this card and you get this patch, uh, this embroidered patch that I remembered said on it. It said Aquabats Flan Cub on it. And I still <laughs> to this day cannot get a straight answer from anybody whether that was an intentional typo or not. Like it really could go either way. Uh, when you're a cadet, you get to go to these things called the Cadet Summit, which used to happen apparently quite a bit before I joined. Um, and it was kind of like a members only like show slash convention slash hangout uh, type event. And I went to one of those that took place in San Diego and they played their first album start to finish. And yeah, it was amazing. So was everybody, was the whole audience and, and everyone there dressed up like Aquabats? Quite a bit, quite a bit. I pretty soon figured out that within like the hardcore cadet community it was kind of not cool to dress up as the alphabets <laughs> in kind of a weird twist of fate it was like it's like if you were first getting into them you dressed up like an alphabet and then and then as you went to more and more shows like you would have your own persona or your own thing that you dressed up with it was not even alphabets related it was like you know it was constantly evolving keeping up with the trends in the cadet community did you dress up uh, in the early days, I did. Yes. Nice. Yes, I did. And was that just like a regular Aquabats uniform or did you have some sort of persona? Um, so my forum name was Ricky Fitness Kicks Arse. And Ricky Fitness was their drummer. And so for a lot of shows, I just wore the anti-negativity helmet and goggles. And I had a white t-shirt written on written in Sharpie that said Ricky Fitness Kicks Arse. And I got him to sign it at some point. So I would just wear that shirt to most shows. And it was kind of like a signifier, like, oh, I'm that person from the forum. And a lot of people would be like, yeah, like I said, like have their name tags with their forum name. And that's kind of how everybody identified each other and like met each other in person. And it was kind of like this, it felt like one of the first like ways of like meeting somebody from the World Wide Web. It was like a very, very new thing. What year was this? This would have been 2001, 2002. Were you still getting online with dial-up at that point or? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Still took me, I still had to hog the phone line in order to <laughs> uh, to frequent the Aquabats forum. So aside from the, the subculture of Aquabats, you were taken by the music itself or the the showmanship of their performances or what, what do you think was so just fascinating to you? I think one, it was the showmanship. I think at that time I was really into quote unquote, like punk where everyone seemed kind of serious and like they were trying to put on some kind of facade that looked really cool or tough. And here was this band that dressed up and just looked insane and did insane things. And also underlying all of this was, I was 
in my early stages of learning how to play drums and on Fury of the Aquabats, Travis Barker played drums and the drumming on that record is really, really good. Like really technical, really fast, really hard to play. And I think I was really drawn to that. Um, his work, his drumming work on that record and in the Aquabats in general. So yeah, those were kind of the big, big allures for me at the time. Have you ever met Travis Barker now that you've been a musician? I have. Uh, really briefly, we played a show at the Troubadour with uh, Set Your Goals in H2O. And randomly, Travis Barker was playing drums for H2O. And I don't know how that happened. Um, but I got to watch them play. I got to watch him play with them, like standing a foot away from the drum riser and all of my childhood dreams were coming true. And um, he came up to me after the show and said like, Hey, great set. Like you killed it. And, and uh, all of my dreams came true. And uh, that was, I found peace at that moment. Yeah. I, I remember meeting Travis at the the barn link 80 played down at the barn and, and the voodoo glow skulls guys and, and him rolled out. Whoa. How was that? It was cool. He was still in, he was still in the aquabats at that point. Yeah. And I think he had just gotten his hands tattooed. And, and so I was like, Oh, you got your hands tattooed. And he's like, yeah, I don't ever want to have a real job. And then like literally <laughs> like a month later, he was, he was in blink 182. Wow. <laughs> so what year was that? Was that 98 or something? He, he, yeah. I think it was 98, 99. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy how that all took place. Yeah. It's a small world. I like Aquabats, but they weren't necessarily one of the top bands for me, but I remember seeing them play in the mid nineties and they totally blew my mind because I loved that they were, they went all in on it. They never broke character. They never cracked up on stage. They never stopped the bit. The bit was like real life to them. And I just remember walking away from that, just being like, man, those guys just committed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are all in and they're still all in. And it, um, it's God bless them for for having the bit. It's like very impressive. <laughs> I saw them in, in 2006 working at Slim's and I'd never seen them before. And I'd always kind of written them off just because of all the goofiness. But then seeing them and seeing what they do live, it was so good. And then they did this whole bit where they, they brought these two little kids on stage. They had to have been like seven or eight and, and they were going to have them crowd surf. And they did this whole bit where they vamped for like it must have been at least 10 minutes where they just like dressed down the audience and were like literally you cannot drop these kids like do not <laughs> drop these kids and they just kept going on and on about it it was really awesome it was yeah so cool to see how much they cared about like the safety of these kids and about everybody having a good time it was really fun and i remember simultaneously they uh really encouraged if any crowd surfers came over your head, they encourage you to steal their steal their shoes and throw them as far as you could. That was a thing too. But yeah, that was the gateway. That was the gateway into all of it. And I know that uh, if you really want to get down to brass tacks of ska, their their ska period was very brief and. They don't like being called a ska, or they don't identify as a ska band. And, uh, but that was really kind of um, the other gateway. Did you go uh, deep into ska, though, after you got into Aquabats? Huge, 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 huge. So kind of the path from there was um, there was this thing in L.A. called Blue Beat Lounge that took place at the Knitting Factory on Tuesday nights, and it was... Um, there would usually be one touring ska band and it was almost always the Chris Murray combo would open. And I saw so many bands there. It was like, saw like the Agrolites there, saw Chris Murray combo more times than I can count. I voted for Kodos, Satori, like Big D and the kids table, just kind of the slackers. And so that kind of opened my mind, like, okay, this is a genre that spans many decades and obviously takes 
many forms and people have run with it in various directions. Now it's up to you as the listener to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Any bands really just become your absolute favorites? I really feel like the Slackers kind of went above and beyond for me in terms of, at least in terms of like timelessness. Like that was a band that, you know, I saw them play so many times at the Troubadour and that's a band that I'll put on these days. And it's like, wow, this is so good. This blends so many things so tastefully. Yeah, Slackers are definitely a band that I will show somebody who claims to not like ska. And usually I'll get a good reaction. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like it's universal. Like they they have figured out how to universally harness the things that sound nice and do it in their unique way. You know? It's not traditional ska, but it's not ska punk. It's like a different elements to it. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, and I like tried to, um, you know, go and explore second wave stuff, two tone. Like I got into the specials pretty heavily, um, and went back and obtained all the Trojan compilations. Got really into Desmond Decker. Kind of started to go down that world. And at that time, like Streetlight Manifesto and Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution were becoming a thing. So I really was trying to experience all forms of it, past, present, future. Um, and it really was my life for, for many, many years. So as a musician, did you start, uh, did you, did you start a ska band? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, that would start for me with my band in middle school, Pigeon Kick. Uh, that was going to be, that was more of a ska punk type thing. Um, very Link 80 influenced. Thank you, Adam. Very, uh, <laughs> We were all listening to a lot of Leftover Crack and Choking Victim at the time. So it was kind of that, kind of a darker, faster ska thing. Um, and then followed by that was The Shenanigans, which also was pretty ska punk. That was like uh, Flaming Tsunamis, a little like hardcore of the time with upstrokes at parts. And I always wanted to be in more of like a traditional ska band and it just never happened for me. But I always thought that that would have been the most fun. Like after watching the Slackers play, it was like, God, playing drums in this kind of band, just chilling out, holding the groove. So much fun. But never happened for me. Do any recordings of those early bands exist? Oh, man. Uh, I think they're <laughs> probably lost. I think they're probably lost to the depths of MySpace. Oh yeah. How would you rate those uh, those recordings though? Oh, not so hot. Not so hot. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know that if I had to stand before the people and defend uh, the musical decisions that were made at the time, I would have any uh, sound arguments to make. But <laughs> you no, know, it was doing something for us at the time and. That has some value to it. Did you play with um, Barry Johnson in an early band? I did. So Barry Johnson and Matt Ebert and I were actually in, we were in like three or four bands together. It was kind of like uh, somewhat the same band, but we would have a different guitar player come in and change the name. And we did this like four or five times over the course of three years. But yes, we've played together quite a bit and uh, there's, we did do some kind of more traditional ska leaning stuff at times that I feel like I revisited those recordings not too long ago and I think I was pretty, pretty happy with them. So I would, may, I would maybe stand by those. What is your history with those guys? Uh, where did you guys meet and how did you start playing music together? Uh, so this was back in the shenanigans days. We were all kind of located maybe like 15 miles north of where they all lived and where they all played. And one day we all played a backyard show together. We all kind of hit it off. Um, and I feel very lucky because I feel like if you, Adam, you could probably relate to this. If you play drums 
you are maybe in somewhat demand because there's only that there's only so many people that play drums. It's kind of an inconvenient instrument and your parents have to be able to put up with like really annoying shit a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> so it's, so we, yeah, we kind of hit it off and they were like, Oh, you play drums. Like we're always looking for somebody new to jam with. And, uh, and one day Barry came over and it was just the two of us and we didn't even know each other super well, but I remember he took the bus to my house. He took the bus like two hours to my house and we, wrote like one or two full songs and it really it was really special like I remember that day very well and the way that we worked together was very memorable and really special and I feel like we've always kind of had that connection regardless of whether we're um, interacting or not what was the relationship like I, I know when I would play drums in bands it would be I felt like sometimes I would function as like creating giving structural uh input and then the songwriter would be making the chords and the melodies was it something like that or did you did you have a little different of a way of working together to write absolutely i definitely think it was that i definitely think i was more of the how about this part we do too and then oh actually i kind of want more of that let's do it four but i also had uh at the time i had been playing I was learning keyboard and piano at this time. And a lot of that was kind of uh, slackers influenced, like learning how to play on piano type thing. And so we wrote a song together where I played organ on it. And that was fun because it was kind of a musical collaboration instead of just, I want four of these. I want two of these. So it's a little all over the place. Did um the band or bands that you did with Matt and Barry ever play live? Yeah, we played a lot of house shows. We played my high school's Battle of the Bands, which we won. Oh, we nice. Round... Congratulations. Yeah, and we went on to round two. <laughs> well, we didn't win the whole thing. We won round one. <laughs> then we went on to round two. And I'll never forget round two was at this bar i guess but it was an all-ages event because it was we're all high schoolers i remember during the show something went wrong maybe an amp went out or something but barry took off into the next room and walked down the bar while we were playing singing without a mic and i just remember the look i went to a catholic school at this time and i just remember the look on my principal's face just like oh my god like what is that and i think i only played in my boxers at this point i had like a period of time where i only played in my boxers for no particular reason other than that it was probably pretty ska and, <laughs> and uh yeah i was like playing in my boxers and barry's like standing on the bar running down and uh, we didn't win. We actually lost to Odd Future, who uh, was in their infant state, and they won that battle of the bands. Aaron, can you con can you confirm that playing drums in your boxers is ska? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think playing in your boxers is probably helps you breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and when you're playing ska, there's a lot of sweat going on. Yeah. So I guess I would agree. Yeah. And this is also a thing that I had just forgotten about until this moment was in Pigeon Kick and Shenanigans, not only would I play in my boxers, but I would have my friend draw on a shirt collar and tie and Sharpie <laughs> on my stomach, which is really, really shameful to think about. But that was the time. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> was that your greatest show the battle of the bands that you almost won from that era <laughs> it might have been that period of time in that band was really fun because i feel like barry had a period of time where he was really uh just it like I never knew what he was gonna do. Like there was one show we played a backyard, and it was like 
on a cliff overlooking these bluffs and during a song he like dis he like climbed down the cliff and like disappeared and it was just kind of it was a very liberating time and uh every show was kind of exciting for me because i never really knew what was going to happen like sometimes yeah. i would just like pick up my toms and like walk away with them and shit and <laughs> it was nice it was very it was very carefree and youthful sure yeah where do you go to from there that's no longer ska <laughs> uh okay let's see here well there was kind of a bridge there's kind of uh okay so simultaneously while doing shenanigans i started doing this band called duke nukem forever uh that was it was like a power violence band really fast and that was with the guitarist of the shenanigans at the time so we started doing this really fast band and then i started playing accordion in this band called qualicos that was kind of i mean i feel like accordion is kind of third wave ska without being it you know and uh so that kind of segued me into the next chapter. So yeah, it was kind of like power violence and accordion kind of got me out of it. I saw Koala Cost. Did you? Where was that? I saw you guys in Joyce Manor at Belazzo Gallery in San Francisco. Oh, yes. And the only, the only reason I saw both of your bands, I came to see the opener and then I was going to leave and go get a burrito, but there were no ins and outs. Oh, I'm sorry. No, well, it was it ended up working out because then I caught Joyce Manor and then I watched Koala Cost. And it was great. <laughs> Who was the opener? Uh, it was a band called Pillow Fights. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. That may or may not have been after my time. Because oh, okay. I left at a certain point to go do Touche. Uh -huh. And then they replaced the accordion with a second guitar, as they probably should have done, as they probably should have done <laughs> in the beginning. Like, it was such a needless, annoying instrument. But The main thing I remember about Qualicost set that night was that the singer kept trying to stage dive even though everybody was playing in front of the stage <laughs> and there was literally like there was maybe 30 people there there was not enough people to be stage diving it was really awesome that sounds completely par for the course yeah. this was um yeah that same person the last show they ever played he uh he made himself like a speedo out of just duct tape and he got like really blackout drunk and crowd surfed crying for like the last three <laughs> songs in this duct tape speedo blacked out crying. It was like, it was really dramatic. It was very uh, emotional. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So that sounds far for the course. I know that you saw Dessa. Yes, I did. Chain Reaction. Was it a bummer to come see us and have us not be Link 80? <laughs> <laughs> No, because because I knew that it was members of Link 80. And as a result, regardless of what it was going to sound like, it was like automatically cool. That's cool. Yeah. So even though there was no Scott, it was still. It could have sounded like, like Western music and I would have been down, you know. I'm trying to think. I feel like there's an, a, another band. I don't know what band it was, but something, I feel like there was a couple bands there where it was associated members of things that I really liked and it really could have sounded like anything and I would have been so down. Nice. That's good to hear. How many shows did Dessa play? Uh, about 250, 300. We played a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we really played that band until the wheels come off. And it's funny because none of us have any desire to revisit it. So whenever anybody asks about a um, any sort of reunion, we're like, that's not happening. If we're not doing Link 80, we're definitely not doing Dessa. Yeah. Yeah. And we used to always play a lot of like, like Codename Rocky and Forces of Evil would ask us to play a like Chain Reaction. Yeah. Um, and then I actually saw a picture of you wearing um, wearing a Forces of Evil shirt. With Guilty. With spiky hair. Guilty. <laughs> what, what was it like for you going to, to shows at Chain Reaction? Uh, it was very novel because I grew up or I lived like an hour north of Chain Reaction. So I didn't go a whole lot, but I definitely went 
you know, 20 to 30 times growing up and always going and seeing all the t-shirts on the wall uh, was like, oh my God, like this band was here. And oh my God, this was, this band was here. And hearing of all the legendary things that occurred there and then going there uh, and then very quickly realizing how hot it is there. Oh yeah. And like <laughs> just unbearable humidity. Um, yes, it was very novel. It's very novel. Have you ever used the secret bathroom? Tell me about the secret, which what's the secret bathroom? So if you go towards the back, back by the sound booth, there's like a piece of wall that if you push on is, is a secret bathroom. It's like the staff bathroom and it's like wow. totally clean. And one, one day I was going to use the regular bathroom and Nick, the owner, it's like, why? He's like, no, check this out. And he pushes on the wall and it opens and there's this clean bathroom. Wow. And uh, No, I had no idea yeah. that existed. Yeah, it's awesome. This whole time. <laughs> so your story with Touche begins with the Aquabats Forum. Is that correct? It does. It's all. It all comes back to the Aquabats, I'm telling you. Wow. Yeah. Take us from Aquabats Forum to you joining Touche. <laughs> okay. So um, when I'm on the Aquabats Forum, big Aquabats fan, I'm a drummer, um, and I met another. There was only a couple kids on the forum that played drums, and one of them was this kid, Sam, who it turned out lived like five miles away from me. And went to a high school that was not too far from mine. And was like, wow, this is somebody who I should be friends with. Um, and one day we were like, hey, you want to go meet up at West LA Music? Like, I have to get drum heads. He's like, oh, I got to get drum heads. We went and we met up at the local music store. And we hung out for a little bit. And quite soon after that, we became really close friends. And... We spent a lot of time together in high school um, and like he played drums in the band, the shenanigans before I did, he left and told me to come in and do it. And um, he went on to go play in that band trash talk. And he did that for a long time. Um, but the tie in is our friendship blossomed from the Aquabats forum. And he was at a barbecue one day with, Jeremy, the singer of Touche Amore, and they were about to go on a two-month tour, and they didn't have a drummer, and they asked Sam, they said, Sam, do you have anybody who could do it? And Sam said, yeah, I think my friend Elliot could do it. And they called me, and I had heard of Touche Amore before. I had not heard any of their music. I said, give me one second to listen to this and make sure that it's vaguely within my playing ability. Um, cause I was at college at the time. I hadn't played drums in a year and I listened to it. I said, awesome. I put in a leave of absence at school and then without knowing them, I went and did this two month tour with them and that was it. Wow. How, how big were, were they at that time? Uh, so that was an interesting tour because the first, the first two weeks were supporting Thursday on the west coast and it went out to texas and then right after that it was a month and a half of just diy shows like like playing real the whole gambit like playing people's basements sleeping in that basement having like actual rats like crawling across me while I was sleeping kind of thing um to actual venues to backyard shows to, and it was really all over the place in terms of um, shows and what kind of settings uh, they were in, but it was their first ever full U S tour. I remember hearing that even though you didn't know any of the guys in the band, you, you got along with everybody really well, right? I did. I totally did. Uh, two of the guys are within a year of me in age and you know, we grew up maybe 15 miles away from each other, but in, in LA, like it might as, that might as well be a different city or a different state for that matter. Um, but it's definitely the kind of thing where had we grown up 
uh, within five miles of each other, we definitely would have become friends and we definitely would have known each other prior to this point. When did the band start becoming like a bigger deal or like a, a band that critics were really fawning over? It's hard for me to pinpoint anything because to me it was such a inching along over time. I mean, like that first tour was really jarring going from having it be pretty moderately cushy, you know, opening for a band and there's automatically going to be an audience there. And there's like snacks that you get to eat that are there when you show up every day. And then as soon as that ended, it was, you know, it was December and rainy and we're playing a house to five people, you know, it was like, uh, and it was that way for a couple of years. And I think the first experience for me personally, where I was really pumped was probably just going to Europe for the first time, going to Europe for the first time and like playing in Hungary and kids being pumped like that to me was, or any, any time we go anywhere that's not, it's five miles away from where we live and anybody gives a shit. It's kind of overwhelming for me, but I feel like that first trip to Europe was kind of amazing. What does the rest of the band think of ska? Let's, let's, let's get down to the, let's get down to the brass text. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, very contentious, very contentious topic in the van. I remember the first tour I ever did with them. I was like, you guys got to listen to this shit, this shit, this is the Aquabats. This is tight. And I remember them turning it off. I remember them turning it off like in the first two minutes. Um, I'm trying to think our guitar player had a period of time where he was like, Oh, you know what? Our guitar player is actually very into Link 80. Oh. And was kind of into was into Link 80. He like had an R expanded space, but never went deeper than that. Other than that, it's like a moderate point of ridicule or jest at mm-hmm. me. But to me, it's a compliment because I cherish that shit and it is responsible for so many wonderful friendships and amazing moments in my life. So just away, really, you know? So are you considered the ska guy in the band? Absolutely. No contest. <laughs> no contest. Was was Brent on the Alcobats forum? He was. He totally was. And I remember seeing his band, The Culprits, a lot. Um, his, his band, The Culprits, played with Barry and Matt's band and the shenanigans a lot. I saw him quite a bit. Man, I fucked up not being on this Alcobats forum. <laughs> it was a nice place. And it like, you know, and at the time, or I guess shortly before that, OC Ska was the big thing, but that was kind of before my time. But it seemed like it kind of went OC Ska and then for whatever reason the Aquabats forum became the the next thing. So that's kind of the place that the Scott kids gravitated towards in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I don't know why, but that's where they went, I guess. I love hearing the Scott connection between Duke Nukem Forever and Trash Talk, just because like, while those bands are so totally different, like it's the same sort of like frenetic energy that you had in like a Scott core band, like Link 80. Like it makes so much sense to me. And it's so nice to hear it like verified. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Without Link 80, none of us would have done any of that shit. It's so sick. It's not a far line to, uh, to trace there. Oh. Yeah. So I, I thank you for all that you've done. Sure. <laughs> I just want to say that I think it's amazing that you were going to show off your ska to your band members and Touche Amore. And you're like, you know what? You got to hear this. They're called the Aquabats. <laughs> like, they're a ska you could have shown them. That would probably go. I know. <laughs> I know. But I guarantee you if i got in the van now and put on the slackers they all would be down and they would all be like wow there's such a wonderful tasteful side to all this and I was like, yep i should have started with this with you guys i'm sorry but i also kind of got off in the early days on being the weird guy or being the guy who is not at all like them you know so being the ska guy 
in opposition to the the rest of your band members, especially being in a in like a post hardcore sort of band that sort of gave you an identity. Yeah. Yeah. And also I'm the youngest one. So I feel like from day one, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of like, uh, I was the little brother type thing. So, um, I was like, Oh, I, I have nothing to be afraid of. I can show them the freakiest shit I can think of. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it was also kind of a test. It was like, okay, if they're down with that, then, I would love to keep playing with these guys. <laughs> I just want to step back. Um, what kind of stuff would you talk about on the Aquabats forum? I mean, I assume it wasn't just Aquabats or Ska, right? It was, was, was it just a place to hang out and talk about everything? Yes. I'm actually trying to think now, like, what are some of the threads I started? I remember learning. I remember finding out that some of the Aquabats were Mormon and posting on the thread on the form being like, is it true the Aquabats are Mormon? Like, <laughs> how do Mormons feel about gay people? And then I think the thread got immediately lost. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah. You do like being you do like being the odd one. To me at 12 or 13, that didn't seem like an out-of-bounds thing to post about. But <laughs> What else do we talk about? Yeah, it was like learning about new music, you know, like people would post their favorite bands. I remember everyone at that time was really into Nutramilk Hotel. And I remember like finding out about them through the forum and like finding out about like Rilo Kylie and like what else? What else did people talk about? I think we should just take a moment to point out to people, break some ska stereotypes. Ska fans like Neutral Milk Hotel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, the proof okay. was in uh, this little. Uh, you're you're in the Aquabats forum. That's what we've we've proved it. Yes, absolutely. I want to talk about your um, solo project, which was started as da- Dad Punchers, right, That's and then the became one. Warm Warm Thoughts. Yes. Why did you change the name? <laughs> Dad Punchers is such a good name. I was so down with that. This is the question I get all the time. Um, so the origin of dad punchers was there was a local band in our area that played a house show while this kid's parents were out of town kids parents came home in the middle of the show the kids in this band the singer ended up getting in a fight with the dad and (laughs) knocked him unconscious so for for the longest time we referred to that band as the dad oh wow um and this was before i had ever written a song before I ever had any intention of making music on my own. It was just this funny title that we all had. Um, (laughs) And so before I had ever made anything, I think in an act of like self-consciousness, it's like, I'm going to just have this self-depreciating name so that regardless of how this goes, like at least there's that. Um, And pretty soon into it, I realized that I enjoy making music and I take it pretty moderately seriously. And I would like to keep doing this into my older days. And maybe it's time to not have that name anymore. So that's it. I think eventually you should have a ska band called Dad Butchers. Right? Yeah, maybe that's what I'm actually saving it for. Keep the name like Warm Thoughts can be can be what Dad Punchers was, but then I think you actually need another band called Dad Punchers. I was so into that band name. Yeah, every now and then I think about going back. I think about going back every now and then. I have like every other Tuesday. I'm like, all right, next record, Dad Punchers. We're doing yeah. it. Yeah, but and it'll be a trad ska record. I'm so down. I'll play guitar if you need it. Deal. You're in. You're <laughs> When you started doing music with Dad Punchers, so what were you doing? Um, where does that fall in your timeline of other bands that you're in? Uh, that was... Uh, Touche was going pretty hard. We had just put out our second record, and I think we were home after like a four-month streak of being gone. Like we We used to do really long streaks without coming home and i think we came home from a longer one 
and I just kind of hold up in my bedroom and like just tried things into a microphone and tried things on a guitar and um and it came out really slowly and eventually got to a point where I was finally not self-conscious enough to the point to put it on Bandcamp and it's just been a slow journey from that. At what point did you start working with um, Asian Man Records? That was maybe one or two years in. I became um, pretty good buds with Bob at the time. We became, we kind of bonded over, um, I don't remember how the topic came up, but we both had this really strong affinity for 90s Lucas Arts point and click adventure games on PC, just kind of like a niche thing that, like, it's kind of rare for me to meet anybody that's into that. Um, so we bonded over that, and yeah, and I, you know, I grew up on Asian Man stuff, and I grew up seeing Mike play, and I grew up worshiping Mike, and I still do worship Mike, and uh, so that just kind of happened and I'm very where, where did you meet Bob at? I met Bob through the bay. Like he was living in the bay and I guess it might have been like Qualicost stuff. Maybe it was like Qualicost going down playing San Jose. Um or no, you know, it was one of my dearest friends from Santa Cruz started this band called Wild Moth that did stuff with Asian man. Oh, I remember them. Yeah. And yeah. And they would go up and play San Jose and they were close with Bob. And I think I met Bob through them. I think is really what happened. Bob was through a connection into Asian man. Then did, did you show the record to him and, or did, how, how did that work out? So basically what had happened was at that point, the first record I did was about to go out of print and the person that originally put it out um, didn't really want to do a label full time. It was kind of like a side thing when that record first came out. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, I gotta see if anybody else wants to do anything with this. Um, and to me, it was kind of best case scenario, dream scenario was having Asian man do anything. And yeah, I think I hit up Bob and I said, Maybe I hit up Bob and Mike and I said, hey, here's this thing that I did and it's about to go out of print. Um, I am planning to make more music. Do you want anything to do with it? And it was at that point that I did the name change and we changed some of the artwork and it was kind of a, a new chapter of sorts. What was it like working with Mike and Asian Man for you? Uh, it was a dream come true. It, it's a dream come true every time I see him or talk to him. I really adore the way Mike interacts with people. Like he will just call me out of the blue and we'll talk about everything and nothing. We'll talk about him redoing his floors and how difficult it is, or uh, talk about a really good run he went on or talk about like things, challenges that I'm facing in life. And yeah. And I, it feels like a, a very nice friendship. And, and I really, I really, really cherish that. Aaron, does Mike have conversations with you like that? So the conversations I have with Mike are peppered with seriousness and insults. <laughs> <laughs> Give me an example. Do you have an example for me? Well, like, okay, with my book, he really likes my book a lot. And he's been extremely complimentary. And he's, you know, called me and asked me questions about things in the book. Like, you know, stuff he didn't know about bands and stuff. And he'll just be really nice and sincere. And then he'll just like, you know, he'll just, he'll just, then he'll just insult me after, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> level the playing yeah. field. Yeah. That's his wit. That's his wit. You can't, yeah. you don't get to have all the glory. It's got to have, <laughs> got to be some level, uh, leveling of the field there. If it was just a compliment, then, you know, I'd assume we're acquaintances. Right. Right. I think that's a good way to differentiate between an acquaintance and a friendship. That requires another level of tact and uh, understanding of the person. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
What are your guys' favorite ska? What's like? What's your number one? Someone's like, okay, Desert Island, you get one. Ska album? Yeah. Or band. I mean, I'd probably go with the, you know, selector specials at the very top of the okay. list. Operation Ivy Energy. Um, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's that's one you could have put on too for the band. And I, I don't feel like they could have been as upset as they would have been at Aquabats. You know what? That actually that actually gets thrown on sometimes in the van, not by me. I think that's that's another one that's a that's kind of a universal. Um, yeah, that's actually a very good point. But is that the only Scott thing that ever gets put on in the van, not by you? Yeah, I think so. Do you ever put on Scott now these days? The slackers. The slackers for me is like it was like what you were saying. Like you can put you can put it on for anybody, and I just feel like it has universal appeal. But that's uh, to be honest with you, I feel like that's one of the that, and I also feel like man, some of the early Suicide Machine stuff. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, like I feel like those are the two that I come back to the most. I a lot of it doesn't hold up for me, but that stuff is pretty timeless. When the pandemic's over and and you guys are going back on the road again, the, your mission is to. Um, Get some slackers on in the van. Get the band into slackers. I know it's going to be a thing because they, everybody in the band is kind of entering their like more mellow music, later age phase. And I know like Wasted Days, Red Light, Close My Eyes, like that's going to, that'll sue them right over. I've been really digging um, the Delirians. They're an LA uh, ska band. Um delirians and then also there's a band band called the frighteners but like most of the vowels have been taken out of the name they're really good too yeah they have uh specific albums i should check out or is it uh it's all good i mean i've only just listened to their stuff off of streaming so i'm not totally sure okay i think the frighteners just had one album because the singer had um there's a there's a tragic story attached to frighteners the singer i think he got als and he was basically deteriorating as they were trying to record their album. Uh, and, you know, it was very important to him to get it recorded. And, you know, I don't, I don't think he lived to see the it release. I could be wrong, but I, that's how I recall the story. That is very sad. Damn. Yeah. It's like kind of rock steady, but his voice is just haunting. It's so good. It's, it's so emotional and just, yeah, you, you'll love it. You should check out the Frighteners. Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna absolutely do that. Have you guys ever had any any van accidents? Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, feel, I don't like the gory details. I feel so incredibly lucky. Knock on wood. Yeah, we have not had any van accidents. Oh, it's amazing. We, we have been really on it about making sure the van is tuned up. The closest we came was um, we played two shows in Newfoundland. Um, and in Newfoundland, it is my understanding that the moose population outnumbers the human population like 16 to one or some shit. And they tell you not to drive at night because moose straight up just kind of take over the entire road. Um, and we were rushing to get on a ferry to go back to uh, Nova Scotia or something. And uh, we came really close to hitting a moose, but uh, we swerved at the last minute. And that was kind of, that was about the extent of it. Like those moments right after a near miss like that, like your body just feels all tingly and weird. The worst. We did that in Link 80. We were, we were driving home from a show <laughs> and we used to do this stupid thing in the van where everybody would just rap at the top of their lungs over whatever was playing over the stereo. So I think I put on like Fugazi or something, trying to get them just all to stop. And they're not stopping because everybody's wasted and they're having a blast. And so we're, we're trucking down the five and we come around this turn and there's a whole family of deer in the road, like oh. six, six deer. And I just go between all of them. Like no time oh. to swerve, no nothing, but just go straight between all these deer and don't hit anything. And just like had that like horrible feeling of just like, like shakiness and nerves after like 
a really close near miss like that. And everybody else in the back, in the back of the van, completely oblivious, still rapping at the top of their lungs. <laughs> <laughs> and you saved their life. They owe it all to you. Well, I'm hopefully nobody, hopefully there wasn't like a car right behind us coming around that curve. Oh, shit. Because it, it could have taken out whoever was right behind us. Yeah. They owe you. They owe you big time. The, the other thing I wanted to ask, the fast punk beat. Yes. Do that, do that, do that, do that. What do you call what do you call that? Uh punk beat. You just call it punk beat? Well, I feel like there's a couple do you want to get into like the variations of it? Yeah. Um, okay, so we have no effect we have what we call no effects beat, which is do ga do do ga, you know. You know, like that one? Yeah. And then uh there's like gallop beat, you know. Like that one, do ga do ga do ga do ga do ga. Uh, and then we've been relying a lot on the old D beat recently, you know, the and then we have pogo beat, which is just do ka do ka do ka do ka. We differentiate a lot about this in practice or when we're trying to write something like, oh, that's a little gallopy or that's too no effectsy. Maybe try pogo y and then into a D beat. And it's like stuff that stuff that only like you and I would pick up on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love all that sort of that sort of dynamic in practice, the like talking out different parts. Yeah. And, and they'll be like, how about some taco? You know, taco, 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 taco. <laughs> bucket of fish, bucket of fish. Yeah, bucket of fish, bucket of fish, bucket of fish. Exactly. Duke and flack em, duke and flack em. Yeah, exactly. Those are all it's the universal vocabulary. It's so great. In in band practice, fucking around, do you guys ever goof off and play like 10 seconds of ska? Oh, man, I definitely do. I definitely, anytime I'm bored, I'll do like a... <laughs> and I love playing that, but I don't think anybody in my band really knows how... You know what? I totally lied this whole time. The bassist in Touche for a short period of time, was in a ska band called the Scallywags. Oh, wow. I never heard him. I don't know anything about him, but that was his experience. But other than that, anytime it practiced... Breaking news. <laughs> anytime I try to, like, get it going with, like, a... Nobody really follows me, but that's fine, because I have fun playing it by myself. No, that fill is so good. Oh, timeless. Yeah. Yeah, it's hot. <laughs> Oh, you're on a Scott Island all by yourself. Yeah, that's how it's always been, and it's found me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but except not because it's responsible for everything great in my life. Yes, yes, that's and specifically Aquabats. Those uh, those Mormons in in rash guards doing backflips are responsible for everything good in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.